Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm Josh Herring, your host. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jason Jewell. Uh, Dr. Jewell is the chair of the Humanities Department at Faulkner University, where uh, he runs uh, graduate programs based on the great books. He holds a PhD in Humanities from Florida State University, a Master of Arts in History from Pepperdine University, and a Bachelor of Arts in History and Music from Harding University. Dr. Jewell, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Great uh, to be here with you, Josh. Uh, you're, you're a man of so many different interests. I mean, that, that, that is such a, uh, from music and history to humanities, uh, what what kind of drove your, your your academic path? Yeah, yeah. I started off as a computer science major, believe it or not. And uh, I decided in the 90s when I was in college, after I did a study abroad in Italy, that I've got to do history. So <laughs> I came back and, and I also decided I didn't want to spend my life in front of a computer terminal as a programmer. So the irony, of course, is now that I direct online programs and great books <laughs> and I spend my life in front of a computer screen. <laughs> but yeah, I've always had really broad interests. Um, came from uh, kind of a musical background and always had music as an interest as well. I also took courses in art history and some other areas that would be considered part of the humanities. So I was lucky to find an interdisciplinary PhD program at Florida State which I, I don't think exists any longer, unfortunately, but we're trying to carry the torch at Faulkner, in a sense, of that same spirit of uh, studying the great books and a broad base of knowledge that the students can interact with. Well, I think that's so fascinating, because I, I, I feel like I've met, shouldn't say I feel, I always grill my philosophy <laughs> students, I don't know, you don't feel in philosophy, you think in philosophy. But I have so many friends that I've met who their path towards the PhD has not been a broadening path. It's instead been this... Uh, narrow, narrow, narrow concern. And, and in some fields, I think that makes some sense. I mean, I have a friend at church who has a PhD in engineering, and mm -hmm. he's very, very good at what he does. Other folks, uh, it makes less sense to me. But uh, could you, I mean, I know so much of your work today focuses on the humanities. Uh, could you make a case for why you think graduate studies ought to be more broad rather than narrow? Or to what extent should they be broad and then narrow? Or how, how would you respond to all of that? Yeah, there's, there is a tension sort of in the graduate programs in particular, because when you come to do your capstone project, your master's thesis or your doctoral dissertation, those projects are conceived of as being, you know, you're, you're supposed to, as the student, contribute something original to the body of knowledge of scholarship. And in order to do that, of course, you have to be specialized to the degree that you can say something new about something. Uh, it's often not, not enough just to be able to to read widely in a bunch of different areas and then all of a sudden have some epiphany of new connections that nobody has ever <laughs> seen before. So we do have to provide some degree of specialization in our program, but I think the case for reading broadly as a graduate student is kind of a microcosm of the case of reading broadly for anybody. You know, mm -hmm. the original vision of the great books from people like Mortimer Adler back in the middle of the 20th century was that you know, a, a democratic republic like the one that we live in needs uh, broadly educated citizens who can you know, think intelligently about the uh, challenges of modern life and uh, have something intelligent to say about public affairs and that sort of thing. And so people who are very narrowly specialized in a particular field tend not to be able to do that quite as well. You need to be able to look at things from multiple perspectives think about different uh, fields of study and how they bring to bear on, on a conversation. And so the, uh, the case for, for reading broadly, whether it's in just what we would call the humanities or even 
more broadly in, in things like the sciences, the natural sciences, of course, in our doctoral program, we do have a, a course in that for our humanities students, I think is a really significant part of what it means to be a, a well-educated and a well-rounded human being. So that's one of the main goals of our graduate programs is to help students along the way to become that kind of a person. It's not just about what kind of job you want to have. It's about what kind of person you're going to be. Which in a, perhaps in, a, in, a, in an ironic way, I think is, and I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, just so in the interest of uh, all, all biases being out there. I, I'm one of Dr. Jewell's students uh, in that program. And a good one, I'll say. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, not that my grade on your uh, history term paper reflected that necessarily, but that's okay. Uh, it, it's been far too many years since I've really been in the history mindset. Um, but the... Uh, uh, really, I think we our, our program tends to attract top-tier students who are looking for like the best of graduate school education, and they're interested in that that wider reading, but then they do really interesting things, mm-hmm. and I, I don't really know what our job placement rate is, but I assume it's decent, especially since most of our people tend to already have entered into either a community college or adjunct professoring at a four-year mm-hmm. school somewhere, but... We also, I think there's something pretty phenomenal that happens when you get together to study things just because you love the subject and you think the subject's worthwhile. And then, but we also manage to do all the kind of good uh, career stuff too. But the real focus is on learning to read and write and think intelligently. And that's a, that's a really beneficial thing. Yeah, it's true. We have a people from a pretty broad variety of backgrounds mm-hmm. in our program. And like you said, some of them are already working full-time in education, either at the college level or at the uh, high school level and classical schools and institutions like that. And then we have some other people who are, uh, you know, retiring out of one career, whether it's as a commercial pilot or um, some uh, law or some other kind mm-hmm. of field. We've had students come from those backgrounds and just say, these are topics that I've always wanted to talk about. I've never had the opportunity to do it in a formal way. And I'm, you know, getting a PhD has always been on my bucket list. And, you know, those, those sorts of motivations uh, that some t- students come to, come to us with. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes for really interesting discussion in our classes. And then also the ideas that they bring to their research projects can be really stimulating too. I know I've found I, I appreciate the, uh, the variety of ages in the classes that I've taken because in part, uh, b- people who have a lot more life experience and have raised families and just gone through more stuff, they bring all of that to reading whatever text we're reading and discussing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of uh, one friend I met who uh, he's a pastor out in Western North Carolina who uh, he retired and doing this PhD was his retirement gift to himself. <laughs> uh, We've had more, more than one student like that. Yeah, oh, uh, friend uh, Carla out in California was mm-hmm. uh, she was uh, she was still finishing up her life insurance career or a house insurance career. I remember we had a there was a hurricane that hit Texas that then she was late for mm-hmm. class because she was processing claims <laughs> for these people whose houses have been destroyed. I mean, it just it's not the typical everyone is. 24 years old and working for pennies and kind of living this isolated, semi-monastic mm-hmm. uh, academic life, which, I mean, does, I'm sure there's, uh, there's cost to that too, but I found the, the, the benefits of having that, that wider array is, uh, is really helpful. Yeah, when you have a, a room full of 24-year-olds all, try, all making pronouncements <laughs> about the way the world works, 
you usually have you know something lacking there that people who are in their 50s and 60s can can be kind of a corrective for so it, i enjoy that in our classes uh well dr jewel i know uh, in addition to running all these programs you're also a a, a scholar of uh of uh, no small repute um uh so i wanted to see if we could talk about some of those areas that you've studied um, I know uh, I took one of your classes a couple years ago where uh, you led us through a study of Russell Kirk and uh, his, his work. And one of the things I took from that class was sort of a, a picture of Russell Kirk as sort of an ideal of what the humanities are kind of aiming at. Uh, Russell Kirk as a man of letters. Now, my, my sense is that in the uh, 20, no, I'm sorry, closer to 30 years since Russell Kirk passed away, mm -hmm. uh, he's sort of fallen out of the public awareness. Not nearly as many people know about Kirk unless they're in like these pretty rarefied circles of conservative academia. Uh, so could you help us with uh, who was Russell Kirk and what was it about him that intrigued you as a, as a, a field of study? Okay. Well, Russell Kirk was what uh, today we would call a public intellectual. I don't think the term really existed back when he burst onto the scene in the 1950s, but I would consider him one of the major public intellectuals of the second half of the 20th century. And he became very well known when he was a young professor at what at the time was called Michigan State College, now Michigan State University, uh, when he published a version of his doctoral dissertation that he had written for the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And that dissertation was published under the title the conservative mind in 1953. So at the time, it's, it's hard for people today to really think about this unless they were alive at that time. But um, back in the early 1950s, almost nobody in the United States would call himself or herself a conservative. That was considered to be um, an intellectual tradition that either was a purely European thing or something that really just didn't have any kind of legitimacy. Mm. Um, there are intellectuals who were writing in the early 1950s who were very condescending towards the idea of a, any sort of conservative ideas or philosophy or anything of that sort. So what Kirk did was really rehabilitate that term, conservative, with this book. And he demonstrated that there were many very important figures, both in the history of the United States and also in the history of the United Kingdom, that could reasonably be called conservative thinkers who had contributed you know, important ideas to uh, public conversation and political discussion. And, but it wasn't just about politics because for Kirk, conservatism was something that was a much broader idea. It was a way of thinking about life. It was mm -hmm. a way of approaching literature and the arts. It was a way about thinking about you know, just general human interactions. And so he had a very broad base of learning himself, having done a lot of reading in philosophy and literature uh, as, a, as a young man. And so he was able to pull all these things together and present this package of what he called the conservative mind to the world. And it, it really took off in the mid-1950s. And he was one of the most well-known figures in the United States uh, during that time. So he was in the public eye a lot for, uh, let's say, uh, at least 20 years or so, and then near the end of his life, unfortunately, his um, influence began to decline because of certain developments within this conservative movement that he had helped to start that um, kind of people kind of turned away from him in certain respects. And so I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the conversation. But uh, yeah, he wrote many significant books in addition to The Conservative Mind. He wrote an important study of T.S. Eliot, uh, with whom he was a personal friend. Uh, he wrote uh, an important book about 
the history of the influences on the United States called The Roots of the uh, American Order, and a number of other books, some three dozen books, I think, almost in the course of his career. So a very prolific writer. Um, he, you mentioned his status as a, a man of letters. His, he, uh, he also wrote fiction, best-selling fiction. And he made enough money from his writings that he was able to uh, leave his position as a university professor because he already in the 1950s, he didn't really like the direction that higher ed was taking at that time. And so he decided he would just go live off of um, what he could make by writing. So he called himself an independent man of letters. Mm. Well, that independence was, is fascinating in so many ways. I mean, I know it's, uh, and still it's just, uh, his, his house is uh, uh, in Macosta. It's, it feels sort of like an intellectual retreat in a way. It's like driving into the small town and here is this uh, beautiful, well-designed, I think Italian wood mm -hmm. of some sort house that Kirk rebuilt after the first one burned down. Mm -hmm. And he had, but it's still, when you go in, I mean, it's, it's available by request for groups or retreats or scholarly visits. And it just feels like you're entering into this world of higher conversation. And, and I remember Mrs. Kirk, is, uh, she, she's still alive. Uh, she, she certainly, uh, the picture she draws of her husband is sort of a man who is always pushing other people to consider the finer things in life. Is that, a, is that an accurate Description? Yeah, the phrase that Kirk borrowed from T.S. Eliot, it was sort of a throwaway phrase when Eliot used it, but Kirk really latched onto it and used it a lot in his own writings, was the permanent things, mm -hmm. things that endure. And that was um, a key part of what he thought it meant to have a, a conservative mind or a conservative temperament. So for Kirk, then, really, I mean, I think he's he would probably push back. I think reading him, and I've, I will confess, I still have read many more of his shorter essays than I have his lengthier books. I need at some point to read his, his work on Eliot. <laughs> But he, his, certainly his essays always feel to be like a, a corrective in the sense of I'm kind of drifting towards relativism or excessive subjectivity. Kirk sort of is a bucket of cold water. You're like, <laughs> this is real, Dagnabbit. You have to recognize it and you have to live according to what's real. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's a sense in which Kirk, I mean, I don't really want to use the word reactionary to describe what Kirk was about, but there is a sense in which he did want to push back against what he saw as the kind of prevailing winds of the uh, intellectual elite, certainly in the mid-20th century. So he had very little patience with what, what he called ideology. Now, today, there are people who would say, like, any pattern of thought, you know, is an ideology. But for Kirk, the term had a more specific meaning. And he said that uh, an ideology is really when a person has a, a set of abstractions in his mind that he wants to make the world conform to those abstractions. So he wants to sort of, you know, take a, you know, put the square peg in the round hole and force the real world to conform to whatever ideas this person might have about equality or progress or any of those kind of buzzwords that we hear today. Even, even justice, you know, which justice is a very important thing. Kirk wrote about it quite a bit during his life, but the way in which people talk about justice today, Kirk would say is probably too ideological, hmm. that um, we start off with this abstract notion of equality, and then we think that justice demands that we make everybody completely equal, which he thinks is an impossible task. And then uh, rather than understanding justice to be something that kind of grows out of a, a culture or, or a society's um, acknowledged ways of interacting with each other, we, we've got some sort of 
sledgehammer that we're going to use to smash everything in the society that we don't like and, and make it all the same, and then that will, we'll call that justice. So Kirk really had a problem with the way intellectuals in particular try to impose these abstractions onto society. So it sounds like Kirk's view of conservatism really uh, has a lot to do with valuing local cultures and local communities. And uh, there's a sense in which, I mean, I, uh, the sense I get today is that conservatism as it stands in the 21st century is often caricaturized as being against diversity and against um, kind of against different cultures instead of trying to just cling tightly to an antiquated, uh, very white, very Eurocentric Western past. But I don't hear that in what you're describing. I hear Kirk is Kirk has there's a what what kind of diversity was was Kirk looking at or, or trying to kind of cultivate in his thought? Yeah, in in the introduction of his book, The Conservative Mind, uh, Kirk lays out these six what he calls the canons of conservatism, and uh, he was kind of careful to leave these a, l a little fuzzy because he didn't want to be ideological. But he said that one thing that sort of is representative of a, of a conservative way of thinking is respect for that's what he called this proliferation of different cultures and different ways of doing things. And he didn't mean diversity in the sense that uh, a lot of modern progressives do in the sense of like they want to be, you know, ethnic bean counters or something like that. But for Kirk, it was <laughs> respecting, you know, a local community's conventions, its customs, its ways of doing things or, or a region uh, of a particular uh, area uh, of a particular country or, or just the way different you know, cultures in different countries do things that instead of trying to say, um, you know, go over to Iraq, for example, and drop the Declaration of Independence on, on them and say, <laughs> look, you know, you all need to be Jeffersonians now. Kirk would say, well, that's kind of silly that we would think that's even possible, considering that the, the culture in that part of the world has a, is a product of a very different history and different mm. religion and different customs that they've had for many centuries. And we can't presume to just come over there and slap them into, into a sense with some kind of Western uh, bromides about uh, democracy or something like that. Uh, it, it's kind of a, he, he would think of it as kind of a lazy way of interacting with other people when you just say, well, I've got my magic key that unlocks all the doors uh, to get us to the good society, you know, with a, a few a few ideas about, you know, freedom or uh, whatever it might be. So that was what he thought of as diversity, uh, different cultures, different communities, doing things in different ways. And people who are not part of that need to um, respect that in, in a sense, because those ways of doing things are, are the, the product most often of a very long process of okay. social evolution. Interesting. So if Kirk is looking for respecting different cultures, ways of doing things over time, kind of as uh, I hate to use the phrase, but I don't have a better one at the moment, but sort of a, a natural selection of processes over centuries that these are what survived. This is this is what 500 years of this group has kind of developed as like, this is the best way to do something. Well, what, what are the permanent things that Kirk thought were always the case kind of in time and place? Yeah, so Kirk did believe in the idea of natural law. You know, that's a, a, a phrase that probably many of the listeners will be familiar with. So he did believe that there were certain ideas and principles that endured that are not um, dependent on time or place or geography. But uh, he, he thought that we had to be very careful when we presumed to know exactly how those permanent things would be instantiated at a, at a particular mm -hmm. time and place. So 
for example, our idea of justice in the United States might look different from the idea of justice in Iran, but uh, we recognize that the people in Iran have an idea of justice and that we can maybe start a conversation with them on why our ideas look different and then maybe you know, learn something from each other, maybe even um, try to adapt each other's ideas to a certain degree if we find them valuable. But for us to just say, here's the key to justice by doing things in a particular way and, and then try to impose that on, on everybody, then that's where he would start saying, uh, you're, you're kind of going down the wrong road. Well, that seems to fit really well with a couple other people I'm thinking of. Um, that reminds me of Christopher Dawson's approach to history and also C.S. Lewis's view of the Tao and the abolition of man, sort of a, a similar idea of like looking at what do these cultures, what principles do they have in common that are then applied uh, and nuanced in particular ways, but that by looking at these kind of commonalities, we can get a sense of the common law that is universal. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, and, and it's, it's easy, and, and some people do, to sort of write off Kirk as uh, kind of a relativist because he doesn't have that a fixed prescription for all times and all places um, because he makes allowances for how these things might look different from place to place. But for Kirk, that's really just a, a part of the humility that we have to have by knowing mm -hmm. that we're not omniscient and that uh, it's impossible. He, he takes a lot of his way of thinking from Edmund Burke, the... Um, great parliamentarian in um, Britain who wrote the book The Reflections on the Revolution in France in 1790, where Burke was looking at the French revolutionaries and saying, what you're trying to do here is kind of wrong-headed and it's eventually going to lead to a lot of bloodshed, which of course it ultimately did with the reign of terror. But Kirk's um, t legacy that he takes from, from Burke is to say, look, you've got to respect the way a society has developed, you've got to respect the way the people think, and you've got to work within kind of the constraints that uh, those people have. Because if you try to come in there and just smash all that and break the mold and put in something new, the bottom line is the people that you, that you want to help or influence are not going to accept it. And then uh, when they don't accept what you're trying to do for them or to them, that's when things tend to get really violent with a lot of these reform movements throughout history. So the, it's a case of the cure being worse than mm. the disease. And that, I know uh, Burke was famously prescient. I mean, he, he wrote that, that letter. Uh, and by letter here, we mean a, uh, this, the edition I read with my, my uh, students several years ago was, I think, 251 pages. Yeah, it's, in the it's, it's a lengthy work, yeah. Edition, but it's a... <laughs> The edition we read was, I think, produced as closely to the original as possible. It was a 251-page letter with paragraph breaks, but no chapter headings, no like sections, no no easy way yeah. to to buy this. It's not the easiest book to dissect and read. I think you may be thinking of letters on a regicide piece. Um, if that's mm -hmm. uh, okay, well, I've read that one. It could, it could then the reflections is maybe yeah. the one you're thinking of. But yeah, it's very very long, very but but many oh it's kind so of good, so rich gems of you know brilliance in, in the passages you know, running throughout that work. In fact, I just. With, and, and supervising a tutorial this summer with a couple of students who have just finished reading that book. And so oh. they, they were really impressed with the way that Burke thought and, and the way that, and it was, it was a lot of new ideas to them because Burke, unfortunately, is not, you know, standard reading at most schools and, and colleges uh, around the country. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was something I had always kind of aspired to read because he was, uh, as I'm sure you would imagine, uh, uh, Burke's name gets dropped at Hillsdale College about every second lecture, it feels like, sometimes. 
Uh, but I never actually read him. And then I had a, an 11th grade Western Civ class that I was teaching. And for the honors project, I just set the ambitious goal of we're, you have to read all of Burke and <laughs> affirm to me sincerely that you read the whole thing. And my commitment to my students all, all throughout the years is that if I assign them something to read, I read it along with them. And so we had a, I, I enjoyed it. I think most of them liked it to some extent, but uh, we kind of got all the way through that. And oh my goodness, he has, I've not read anybody else who has as clear a picture of uh, how do you look at a culture, see what's there and kind of track the development of it over centuries. Mm-hmm. As a, maybe for an easy example, like, the English commitment to tea time. <laughs> I mean, just that's a custom. There's nothing inherently good, bad, right, or wrong about it, but there's a civility, a gentility attached to the fact that in the afternoon, most English people take a pause in their labor and they sip a cup of tea. Well, that's a custom in Burke's sense that's just developed, but it's kind of the visible picture of a whole society that's grown up to have these niceties mm-hmm. and um, so, yeah, so that's a good example you could imagine some rationalist thinker coming in and say look there's no rational reason why you guys should all take right. a break in the afternoon to have tea and so if he were put in charge he might want to abolish tea time and say you know we're sacrificing all this productivity and efficiency by everybody stopping oh. to to have tea but you know <laughs> somebody like burke or kirk would say well, you know, life isn't just about being as efficient as you possibly <laughs> can right. or being as productive. And, and these are these little rituals, these, these social niceties. Uh, for many people, these are one of the things that give life meaning and, and, and enjoyment. And so to try to take that away because you don't see a rational basis for it is, is, is cruel and ultimately destructive to the society. There's uh, one passage I'm thinking of where he described, he sort of... Uh, he describes all of those customs as the clothing of society or the clothing of civilization. And the rationalist over in France, the, the children of the Enlightenment, who mm-hmm. themselves are not nearly as rigorous as some of the other Enlightenment thinkers, but they're now applying these ideas to France. And he describes it as if all the clothing that makes <laughs> the human body <laughs> acceptable to each other, uh, make, we just rip it all away. And it's as if we're all going around in our, uh, he has this like ugly nakedness that <laughs> was a really fun passage to talk about with high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But but if you fast forward from the time that Burke wrote that, you know, three just three years or so, and you see just the absurdities that developed uh, during the Reign of Terror, you can see that uh, he was exactly right in his diagnosis mm-hmm. of this problem. Uh, before we get off of Burke, I do want to mention that uh, another thing that Kirk took from Burke, uh, from the, the Reflections on the Revolution, Burke said that, when it came to British society, at least, everything that was valuable about their civilization could really be boiled down to two things. And those two things were uh, revealed religion and the spirit of the gentleman. Mm. And so um, Kirk latched onto that, and he talked about the same two ideas when he talked about the history of America in the colonial period and coming up to the founding and how uh, the, the spirit of revealed religion and the spirit of the gentleman were so significant in developing that culture that eventually resulted in uh, the independent United States. Of course, you, you read a standard um, textbook that talks about the American founding, and, and you'll never encounter right. that. It's, well, there was Montesquieu, and maybe there was some Locke, and uh, some, some abstract ideas, and then all of a sudden we've got this new country. But those, uh, Kirk would say, look, the the Declaration of Independence is 
the product of a culture that has been shaped by these important mm -hmm. uh, forces. And you can't just pretend that you, you can take those away and then wind up with the Declaration of Independence. So that's, again, going back to the example of why he thought it would be silly to drop copies of the Declaration on people in Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, they wouldn't take from it what we would want them to take from it. Right, because the, the Declaration of Independence is not, a, not to put words in Jefferson's mouth, but kind of to put words in Jefferson's mouth. I mean, that's, that was never intended to uh, construct a sort of free-for-all. It was intended to say, uh, we conclude that we have these inalienable rights that are themselves dependent upon a whole metaphysical worldview, a, an assumption about revealed religion and adherence to law. Uh, James Madison says similar things about mm -hmm. the, uh, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government and that sort of idea. Um, I think it's fascinating. Uh, Roots, I read sections of Roots of American Order several years ago to uh, try and consider, uh, or as part of a senior seminar course I taught, and uh, Kirk does such a wonderful job of kind of tracing uh, without requiring the reader to necessarily adopt the religious view that he's describing. But he kind of shows, here's how in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew experience, there are certain values, certain views that come forward, and we can see them in specific concrete places like the Ten Commandments or like the Prophets that sort of uh, reflect a kind of collective wisdom of the Hebrew civilization in a way. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and does the same thing with the Greeks and the Romans, and not to say that we need to all be Greeks and, and go back to naked wrestling or anything <laughs> like that, or that we should all be Romans and uh, going back to making roads that actually last longer than 10 years or anything like that. But that there are these kind of truths and pieces of wisdom that each of these civilizations develop, and he shows those all sort of uniting in uh, England first, and then in the founding of America, that not to jump too close to uh, contemporary days, but uh, it's the sort of, it's almost an antidote to the sort of fervor that gets wrapped up in the 1619 project, or... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's potential counterpart to 1776 project. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little grumpy about that one too, but the, the attempt to sort of co-opt the narrative of American history and reduce it down to a single negative note, uh, really Kirk pushes back against that and says instead, American history is the sort of orchestra of all these different pieces fitting together that can't really be effectively reduced to a single textbook. And if you read... I think if you do a substantial primary source driven American history course, you see all the pieces there if you've been equipped with the pieces to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, in this past spring, I, I did a topical seminar based on the roots of American order. Mm. And along with that book, the students were reading many of the primary sources mm -hmm. that Kirk discusses as part of this narrative. And, you know, we do have, despite what, uh, Faulkner's reputation might be as a conservative institution. We do have progressive students in our student body, and there are people who wanted to push back against Kirk a lot. Um, but by the end of it, uh, in their final essays, even these progressive students were saying, okay, he's bringing up some things that I had never thought about before, and, and maybe the arc of American history isn't as simple as, as I originally thought it might be. So that... Uh, what you're talking about, the, the orchestra of voices and the different uh, parts interacting with each other, I think that's a, a really 
nuanced understanding that we need to develop that history is not just uh, you know black hats versus white hats and good guys and bad guys <laughs> and you, you, it's easy to get that sort of cartoon version in grade school uh, for a lot of people and unfortunately many people sort of carry that caricature mm-hmm. into adulthood with them and we see that play out in a lot of our political conversations unfortunately. Now, uh, two uh, lessons I, uh, in history I learned at, at Hillsdale. One was from uh, Dr. David Stewart. His, uh, he was himself a disciple of a Spanish historian named J.H. Eliot, and uh, he had this quote that showed up in most of his classes, and I'm probably going to mangle it, but this is, this is what I remember from about 14 years ago. That uh, the, uh, the student of history is rightly suspicious of a neat and tidy answer because his study of history has shown him that things are simply too complex and messy for a tidy answer. Yeah. And the uh, senior or junior year, I took a class from Dr. Richard Gamble in philosophy of history. And uh, after the course was over, it was one of those classes where Dr. Gamble taught it very Socratically. So it was never quite clear what the, the running thread in the course was until it was all over. And uh, it's part of things I think that makes him a master teacher that he did effectively lead us to see the thing that he wanted us to see, but we concluded it. He didn't just tell us what the right answer was. And we didn't realize that's what he was doing until the <laughs> class was over. But uh, he, uh, I, part of that was the, the whole class was culminating in reading uh, Herbert Butterfield's Whig narrative of history, where he sort of uh, brings up that whole question of and concludes that the point of history is not to trace the good in its opposition to the bad and a sort of Manichaean opposition. But instead, the task of the historian, which is why it's really, really hard, uh, is to get into the mindset of the people in the time period that you're studying and try to understand why these choices made sense because if we are rational, so too were they. And if we make choices that make sense, those choices that we might completely disagree with appeared sane and rational and even good to many folks in that time period. And the trick of the historian is to get into that mental space, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, I, I, uh, it's, it's that, that it takes years to get there, but I think that's, I, I still think that's the goal of a history major is to kind of cultivate that, that mindset. Yeah, there are some really interesting attempts to get students to do that in, in constructive ways. I don't know if you're familiar with the Reacting to the Past series of Mm-mm, books, but there, there's a, a consortium of universities and college professors who have written these things where each it's kind of like a role-playing game, and each student inhabits the role of a different character oh. at, for example, the Constitutional Convention or 5th century B.C. Athens or... Um, even during the um, the French Revolution, you've got um, forces in, in in the Parliament or in the, the French National Assembly. So you can assign to a student and say, "Okay, you're you're the aristocrat, or you're the bishop in the Catholic Church, and you have to present that perspective persuasively." Ooh. And it's sort of like what you know we, we would tell students in, in on debate teams: you've got to argue for this proposition, even if you don't believe it. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing brought into a history classroom, and it can be really effective in getting students to try to inhabit those roles and try to think through why would these people have? Why well, can't just assume they're they're bad people, and that's why they uh, decided. To do these things, you know, right. let's, let's let's try to think through the process that that could have led a reasonable person to that decision. How fascinating! I'll have to check that series out. That might be a, a great resource to hand to some of our history teachers at Thales. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jewell, I would uh, feel remiss if I uh, we had the opportunity to get together to chat on the show without asking you to uh, 
Um, help us, I know, uh, with um, uh, where political conservatism is today. I know Kirk rather famously rejected the question of a, a list of policy propositions that a conservative should endorse. But I know one of your other areas of interest over the years has been kind of tracking the movement of conservatism in the 20th century from uh, the, the 50s into the Barry Goldwater era and the Reagan era and into the present day. Uh, so if only because I was uh, listening to a, a conversation between public intellectuals today and was very disappointed when they didn't answer my question. I would love to ask you my question and see if we can get a better answer. Uh, where, where do you see political conservatism in 2021 and where, where do you see it going in, in coming years? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question to ask, and, and the answer is, is kind of up in the air right now because there's a lot of interesting debate going on on the political right, I think, I think much more so than there is on the left at this point, about um, what we might call Reagan conservatism and, and the people who see themselves as the custodians of that, what they used to call the, the three-legged stool of the Reagan coalition, which was uh, free markets, and um, social conservatism, like family values type thing, and uh, an active foreign policy that was designed to, in, in Reagan's time, of course, uh, keep the Soviet Union at bay. Well, of course, the world has changed since Reagan's days, and uh, the foreign policy situation in particular is very different, but also our domestic social situation. I mean, nobody had ever even heard of transgender people, for example, in 1985 when, when um, Reagan was president. So you have other people on the right who say, look, that, that Reagan consensus isn't really going to take us where we need to go at this point. And you have people saying, you know, globalization has changed the conversation about economics uh, in conservative circles. The questions of uh, foreign policy, you know, wh whether it's, you know, Islamic fundamentalism, or uh, other kind of threats out there, China, you know, it's, it's, it's not just like us versus the Russians anymore. And so there are people saying, look, we, we need new ideas. We need, uh, conservatives need a, a new approach. We can't just say free markets all the time anymore. Uh, we can't just say we're gonna go have uh, American hegemony overseas. We don't have the money. So there's a lot of debate going on right now. And of course, the presidency of Donald Trump was a manifestation of this debate. Trump, in a sense, uh, at least not in terms of his personality and uh, whatever defects he has in that respect, but at least in terms of much of his policy, is sort of um, the heir to in what in the 1990s and 80s and 90s was called the paleoconservative mm -hmm. movement. And some of those intellectuals are still around and still writing, but these are people who said, uh, essentially, look, you know, we've, we've got to focus on... Um, trying to define, you know, what America is, the paleoconservatives would say America is not, no nation is a proposition nation. You can't just say because I hold to certain abstract ideas that I'm an, I'm an American. And uh, this is something that Kirk was not a paleoconservative per se, but he thought along the same lines as um, some paleoconservative thinkers in these respects. So when it came to questions like um, immigration, for example, mm -hmm. And paleoconservatives would say it's a bad idea to have just you know open borders, which has been the editorial policy of the Wall Street Journal, you know, ever since the '80s. Uh, Wall Street Journal has always said we need a, a constitutional amendment that just says there shall be open borders, you know, unlimited immigration. Interesting. And the paleoconservatives say 
well, no, we, we won't maintain sufficient, uh, you know, cultural cohesion to stay together as a country if we have open borders. And uh, because if you survey people around the world and you ask how many of you would like to come to America if you had the opportunity, there's something like, you know, two billion people who would like to do that. So obviously, you know, the United States can't accommodate, you know, that yeah, many we're, folks, even we're, if we want big, to be welcoming. Even in North Dakota, I don't think there's enough landmass <laughs> available. Right. So uh, one of the uh, arguments that had developed uh, in the conservative movement was that people like Ronald Reagan and many other what we might call establishment conservatives were of the opinion pretty much that, yeah, we should just have unlimited immigration. It's good for our economy and it'll build up our workforce and shore up Social Security and all these other things. And uh, that was something that was really what the, the base of the Republican Party uh, didn't agree with, and, and just really the American electorate uh, as a whole. Like, uh, if you go back just to even a few years and you ask how many people think we should have essentially unlimited immigration, you'd only find something like 20 or 30 percent of the American electorate in favor of such a policy. So, the uh, debate on the right has been you know, who are we as a people? Um, and if we're not just a, a universal nation, you know, where, are, where do we draw the lines? I don't, I don't think there are many people who would say we need to draw the line uh, racially or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there, there, there's a conversation that, that is being had there. There's also conversations about the extent to which uh, free markets have served the interests of the American people. There are a lot of places in the country that you can point to to say, you know, maybe free trade is great in the abstract, but there are places like Appalachia that have really lost out as a result of free trade. And so do is, is that a, the right policy at all times in all places? Uh, so, and then of course, questions about uh, social values. Abortion is always a hot topic. Um, the base of the Republican Party and the conservatives, of course, are very pro-life. Many of the establishment conservatives don't really care about that issue. Mm -hmm. uh, really, a lot of the conservative movement has been uh, <clears throat> maybe uncharitably describing this as kind of um, political opportunists who want to wield power looking for a base that will vote for them. And so <clears throat> when uh, the, they will tell the base something nice that will get them elected, and then when they get into office, they don't make the, the base's priorities their priorities. You know, this, this is not something that's unique to conservatives. It happens on right. the left as well. But um, we're at the point now where, where Donald Trump, I think, was a moment where um, the base of the party said, we've had it with the establishment people. We've had it with the Bush family. We've had it with some of these other guys who have considered themselves our standard bearers for the last 30 years. And uh, they they sort of uh, made Donald Trump the Republican nominee as kind of a slap in the face to the Republican establishment. And so then you wound up with the Never Trump movement on, on the right. And so there's been a really interesting um, conversation going on over the last five years, really, among conservatives. And the question is now, uh, now that Trump is presumably gone um, after the 2020 election, who will be the standard bearer for conservatives in 2024 and beyond? Will it be somebody like, um, you know, Ted Cruz, who in 2016 kind of presented himself as the Reagan heir? Or will it be someone more like uh, Josh Hawley, who mm -hmm. the senator from Missouri, who presents a more kind of populist vision that might be in tune more with some of the uh, conservative base. So <clears throat> I think if we're, we want to make a connection to Russell Kirk here, he would say that uh, 
some of those concerns for the uh, for the base, I mean, you, you need to pay attention to them, and you need not just to give them lip service, but to say uh, we're we're going to <clears throat> do our best not to make um, uh, abstractions run the show. We need mm. to make, remember that there are real people in real places that are being affected by these policies, and uh, at a minimum, if we're going to have a you know a <clears throat> something like free trade that we need to have a plan for what to do with people who are displaced by um, if we're going to have cheap imports and people who lose their jobs and domestic factories as a result of that. So Kirk uh, would, would come back to this idea of uh, we, we have to remember that uh, conservatism is not just about uh, some abstract vision for the world. We, we need to make it about real people. Hmm. Well, I don't know that there's a, I, I don't know there's an answer in there that, that, is a definitive answer to like where conservatism is going, but that's a fascinating description of kind of the current conversation that's happening. That yeah, um, let me let me just yeah. give one one other example. There's an interesting debate going on on the right right now about so-called family policy. Oh yeah, I've seen some of the essays. Yeah, about so that. so there are um, there are some people who say, look, you know, it's you, you do you look at the survey data and you see that um, American families, if you poll them, it's like, would you like to have more children than you have now, or do you have as many as you want, or would you, are you, do you regret having as many as you did? And on average, uh, the the families and, and women in particular say they would like more children than they now have. Hmm. And the number one reason why they say they don't have more is that they can't afford it. So there's a question then about well, how can we make family formation more affordable? And the uh, you know the uh, the the Reagan answer to that would be, well, we need to cut taxes, obviously, and uh, make sure that we get rid of regulations that are preventing, uh, you know, making things more expensive and things like that. And then you have these people who are calling themselves reform conservatives saying, no, we need a family policy that will subsidize families you know, give them money so that making families grow is, is a more affordable thing. So uh, we have this interesting debate going on right now whether to, to what extent that's desirable. Do we want the state to say, yeah, let's, uh, let's get involved in family formation and sending out cash to mothers so they don't have to work and they can stay home with their kids or, or they can pay for daycare or, or, or what have you. And I think questions like that are really what's um, kind of animating a lot of the discussion on the right right now. It's really interesting because I, uh, I did some research on that question for a debate resolution last year. It was mm -hmm. on one of the uh, National Speech and Debate Association's Lincoln-Douglas resolutions was on um, nationally subsidized child care. And it brought up a lot of that. Uh, and at least of the plans we looked at, uh, so in the last six months, uh, six months ago, we looked, I think there were about four major policy plans that had been kind of proposed and studied and written about None of them had great answers for how do you pay for it, which is still the question that I'm struck with, with all of these. I mean, I love the idea. I mean, I have two friends that come to mind, um, one couple with six kids where the dad just finished his PhD. And uh, I mean, it's just God's grace. I don't know how they make it financially, but God provides. And another friend who I've uh, taught with for five years, and he and his wife are ridiculously careful and frugal with their money. But they've got five kids on a single teacher salary, and it's crazy. But they make it work. But so, like I, but I know they could certainly benefit from more money in a way. But it would also, I still have this instinctive, 
the government never gives money without unintended consequences and strings attached coming with that money. So, like, I don't know, and government's intervention in higher education has been disastrous. Uh, on balance, I would say government intervention in public education for the last century has been pretty bad, with pockets of it not being as bad in local communities. But on balance, it's pretty bad. So I don't know. I but I also, I also I, I have a I, I love the Reagan cut taxes plan, except that we have this ballooning debt, <laughs> and we keep spending more money that our government doesn't have. So I also I get the logic of we can't cut taxes and keep spending money. So I don't know what to make of all of that, but those all seem to be complexities that somehow need to be resolved. Yeah, and, and if you look at um, a lot of these plans, you're right that there's not really a persuasive uh, understanding of how this is going to be paid for. But but it's interesting that you said specifically nationally subsidized child care. That's actually more the progressive um, well, approach that's, to that's it. That's because it was an NSDA resolution. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's interesting because this, I think this highlights a, one of the differences between the right and the left on questions like this, where whereas the right, I think, is more willing to say, well, let's just give the families the money, and then if they want it to use it to pay for child care, great. Uh, if they want to use it so that, you know, as an income substitute so that mom can stay home with the kids, then that's great too. Whereas the progressive um, take is really more, no, we want women in the workforce. I, um, so, so women at home is a bad thing. You know, it's it's uh, you know not not good for them, and they need to go out and have careers. So there, there's even if we've got people on the right and the left agreeing that there ought to be more government involvement in this particular area, there's still a big debate on how exactly to do it and what end is being pursued there. Uh, if things don't work out at Faulkner, I'm sure you could always have a new job as a debate coach because those, <laughs> those were, in fact, the, the lines of argumentation. I mean, the, the affirmative side ended up arguing for this will enable more women to stay in their careers longer and it will create more equality. Uh, and the strongest negative argument that I could not get any of my students to run but it's what ended up being in uh, elimination rounds. The best negative argument was basically um, to buy, uh, was run a, a critique against the resolution and say that the reason we should not affirm this uh, universal child care subsidy plan uh, is that it ultimately is incentivizing women to be in the workforce over being in the home. And it, this, the resolution affirms a world that denies the goodness of being a mother. Yeah, that, that's right. So, well, Dr. Jewell, I know you've got, uh, we've got to keep an eye on our time. We are uh, probably pretty close. I know you've got lots of commitments today. Thank you so much for coming on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's always a pleasure to see you, especially face-to-face. Face-to-face. That's amazing. Uh, oh, real quick before I forget, um, how can people find and follow your work online? Okay, well, I, I do have um, a personal website that has been inactive for some time, so I won't bother you with that one. But, <laughs> but you can look me up on, on Faulkner University's uh, website, faulkner.edu, and just search for my name. Uh, if you are interested at all in any of the uh, degree programs that I direct in the humanities, distance programs, and the great books, I'd love to, to have some communication from you. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. 
Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.